0: Hi everybody, I am Marty Sober, member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was so worried somebody was going to interrupt him when he was talking about how good it was to have me here, and then he he just stopped. (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to tell your committee that, you know, despite Tradition 10 and the non-organizational parts of it, it's been a great conference. Would would you all concur with that? The speakers have been... We had Eleanor here this afternoon. Some of you may have not heard the Eleanor's. I love Eleanor. I always think of the story about the Eleanor that comes home from the doctor's appointment and the husband says, uh, how did your appointment go? And she says, "Good. He said did he did he what did he say about your big fat rear end?" She said, "Your name never came up."
1: <laughs>
0: we have a great we have a great relationship with Eleanor. We had we had uh, Friday night uh, a tech which was hysterical robin is just bigger than than anything and full of life and oh my god we really enjoyed you had a spiritual talk this afternoon with an f-bomb and i've never heard that one before but it was it's kind of like in alcoholics anonymous you can hear the f-word and the word god in the same sentence and somehow it sounds strangely like is this guy a religious fanatic does he have to go like on and on about it or something like that so it's uh, it's been it's been a good deal and, and the panels have been good and the the food's been good and you know thank you thank you very very much for taking time to put this on. Legacy meetings like this are dying. I don't know if you know that or not, but w- what is really starting to glean huge groups of members of Alcoholics Anonymous are these uh, sort of like Woodstock meetings where they have step after step after step, and the legacy meetings of having just some speakers and so on are getting smaller. I don't think that's happening here. This this actually seems to be. A kind of a pocket of enthusiasm so congratulations on that. I think these are important. It's where I sobered on You know at the back of the room taking the speaker's inventory yeah. <laughs> I know if you're young you're looking at me thinking God why just go back and die? He's so old, you know what I mean? Yeah, anyway uh, I'm glad to be here, and I, I just want to say one last sort of little uh, commercial message here and that's if possible uh, support the tapers the the people that are doing the recording that also is something that's getting extremely difficult to sustain they they go from conference to conference and basically live on the little bit that they sell so support them it's i I, there's nothing better than getting a talk where you've connected and you can play that part over and over again so really strongly encourage you to do that so I said that my name is Marty I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous I say it that way because that's how they ask us to do it in the, in the third forward of the big book it says when we speak publicly to introduce ourselves as members and not to use our full names. so that's why I do that I am an alcoholic and uh, that's a bit of a mystery like if you're new in the room the earth people don't understand how I sobered up in 1976 February the 8th of 1976 I've been going to meetings for 42 years and I still call myself an alcoholic. They they think it's going to clear up or something. <laughs> but you know, it's not. It's not. Alcoholism is a disease. Alcoholism is a disease, and that's not just something we made up to say, "Hey, I rolled the car. I'm a diseased human being." You know, it's, it wasn't us that called us diseased. It was the American. Medical Association in 1956. And how they did that, they didn't come into a coffee shop or something and say, who's in favor of calling alcoholism a disease? You know, like, let's have a show of hands here or something. It doesn't work like that. In order for something to qualify to be a disease, there is a rigorous sort of scale that they have to go through. The first thing is that it has to be what's called primary. It has to be something that exists unto itself and is only like itself. In order to qualify as a disease, it has to be chronic. That means it's not just going to go away anytime soon. There's not going to be a spontaneous healing or a remission. It has got to be progressive in nature. And in alcoholism, we know it never gets better. It always gets worse. We've had so many demonstrations of that. Symptomatic means that alcoholism can be diagnosed by looking at a person's uh, physicality, but you can also look at their lifestyle, their behavior will tell you whether or not they're alcoholic. And another thing that makes this a disease is that it's faithful. I mean, it's fatal. <laughs> it's faithful, too. It's, <laughs> this is not going to be a good night. So it's. it's <laughs> I have a f- faithful disease, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's worse than yours, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, alcoholism. Is fatal. It, it, if you have untreated alcoholism, you will die from it, and that's whether you're drinking or not drinking. Okay. So this description, this whole notion around alcoholism, is pretty much toward the first half of the first step. It's it's about the abnormal reaction we have to alcohol. Now I know in the Big Book it calls it an allergy, but I've met very few people who have a say coconut allergy and are hiding coconuts in the toilet or, you know... Is, you know, is there coconuts at your place? I can't come over, you know, it's... Not so much. But what we have is an abnormal reaction, like what happens when I drink is that the, the chemical stuff that goes on inside my body is different than 97 or 93 out of 100 people. What happens to me chemically is that the, the, the energy processors in my body, the, they're called mitochondria for whatever reason I'm telling you that, and, uh, and, and what happens is they shift from processing food for fuel to alcohol for fuel. And then what happens is, is that when we stop, our body goes into what they call, <laughs> I love this term acute distress. <laughs> I've seen some pretty uncute distress too, I'll tell you that. But what happens when I start to drink is I can't control, predictably, can't control the amount I drink. Sometimes I can Sometimes I can't, and when I really need to, I definitely can't. That's that's sort of, if you've got that. The other thing is that, you know, to to know if you're an alcoholic of my variety or not, stop. If you can stay stopped, then you're probably just a problem drinker. These are the obnoxious individuals like my father that if you're getting drunk, they get drunk. If you're drinking socially, they drink socially. I, I can't stand these people. And because it's it's like that, they're playing. That's alcohol abuse, in my opinion. That is alcohol abuse. You know, you either get drunk and roll the car, or you're nothing to me. You're dead to me. You know. <laughs> you know? And so, when when you have got the disease of alcoholism, then the only thing that it says that you can do about it is a spiritual solution. Oh, wow, that's not good news. If you're new in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous if you were like I am when I came to AA at 23 years old, the one thing I knew was that God, if there was a God did not like me and it wasn't so much that I didn't believe in him I believed in everything evil (laughs) it was just this whole notion about God loves you Marty does he? where was he when the cops got me the other night then? see, it's, it's sort of like all of this materialistic kind of stuff. So there's the what I had to come to understand in Alcoholics Anonymous is that there is a material world where there's time and there's birth and there's death and there's form and then there's this spiritual world in which there's no death, no form and no time. This this is really hard to get your head around when you're new because you know when you drink you have a kind of a pretend spiritual experience. Now I sobered up in Saskatchewan, (laughs) the arrogant people of BC (laughs) speak poorly of us prairie chickens. In fact, when you tell them you were born in Saskatchewan, they go, what was it like growing up there? (laughs) You know, it's flat in Saskatchewan we all know that if you stand on a pineapple tin on a clear day in Saskatchewan you can see the back of your own head that's how flat it is in Saskatchewan but alcoholism is doing very well in Saskatchewan as it is everywhere else here's a disease that you know we're kind of dropped out of vogue since the drug thing has kind of come along it's sort of like well yeah I'm an alcoholic too I, I got a hot tip for you we are still the number one drug that kills more people than anything else in the world. Turn your back on it if you will, it will kick you in the arse. Alcoholism kills somebody on the highways every 30 seconds. In, in the United States and Canada, we drink $197 million worth of liquor a day. Yeah. It is, st- yeah!
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: keep coming back So uh, it, this, it is a horrendous and not only do, do us alcoholics kill ourselves drinking but we kill people all around us people that don't even have alcoholism are dying of alcoholism you know look at our kids and our families the genius of Alcoholics Anonymous is the fact that when we recover so many people around us have a better life and so You know, what I'm going to tell you tonight is is that at at 11 years old, I was alcoholic. I was absolutely, I had every one of those things. The disease had a hold of me. I had not yet had my abnormal reaction to alcohol. At 11 years old, I noticed things like my mother... Breathing in and out, repetitively breathing out. Stop it. You know, I mean, I, I hated my mother. I hated my family. I hated Christmas, God and the Easter Bunny, school, everything. I just hated everything. And, you know, if there was one common denominator among alcoholics that I've met in the years that I've been sober, it's that there's a kind of like a low-burning ember of sort of wrath that burns a lot of the time. Watch us in our cars. <laughs> praying for others as they're driving you know (laughs) because if you're an alcoholic of my variety there are two sets of rules there are the rules you should drive by and know better and there's what I do (laughs) stop signs are a suggestion the speed limit is cute but really you should obey those things you know you come through a stop sign I have a myocardial infarction I'm yelling at you speaking in tongues I roll through a stop sign, it was just a mistake. I mean, what happens in alcoholism, as somebody said very astutely at one time, it's a perception disease. It's like looking through a telescope the wrong way. Things that should be important aren't. And the things that aren't important become very important. And so if you're an alcoholic of my variety, uh, what happened to me was I didn't cross an invisible line, I never even saw a line. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous at 23 and they were saying things like, oh my God, how much could you have possibly drank? In 1976, there wasn't anybody around much in their 20s. It was considered like, what are you doing here? Go and really get drunk, you know? They're saying, I spilled more than you drank. And I'm thinking, you must have spilled a lot, you know? (laughs) I've got a distended liver. I've I've got... I've got all sorts of kidney issues going on here. I have DTs when I stop. I am suicidal beyond your wildest dreams. I am 23. That has nothing to do with what's wrong with me. And so I started looking at them and I'm thinking, so you you were out drinking for, like, what, 40 years? How did you do that? If you drink the way I drink, you couldn't last anything like 40 years out there. And what I came to understand was, that if there's a disease that's kind of like alcoholism and it's symptomology, it's diabetes. You know, some people don't become diabetic until they're in their 60s, and then they're suddenly severely diabetic. And we see this in alcoholism. We see people that have been drinking for years and years and years, kind of normally, and then all of a sudden they cross what Bill called an invisible line, and then they are inconsolably drunk a lot of the time. The Jekyll and Hyde, right? Incredibly drunk at exactly the wrong time. So alcoholism, there's 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 lots of really funny things. They would be totally funny if they weren't so tragic that happened to alcoholics of my variety. And so at 11 years old, angry, 11 years old, no answers. I had a brother. This brother, oh my God, I hated this guy. I had like in our family there was uh, five children. One of us had already passed. I had an older brother named Paul. Paul was kind of harmless. Then I had Michael, who was the devil. And uh, used to do things like put me in the dryer and turn it on. Oh, Marty's on TV, you know. (laughs) God, I dreamt of killing him so many times. I mean, if you're an alcoholic of my variety, when when things that are in the spiritual, like a thought, is a spiritual thing. I'll tell you a phrase you don't hear very much in Alcoholics Anonymous: Hold that thought. We can hold a thought. What are you thinking about? Oh, you know. Here, watch us try to meditate. <laughs> but when I drink, I come to a fine point. I'm going to kill my brother, you know? And I feel better about a lot of things when I But it was a spiritual coming together all in one place all at the same time for me. Cuz I'm an alcoholic that has the effect produced by alcohol. And I can drink a copious amount of alcohol because of the way my body was designed. So I had this brother. Then I had my, my sister, the meddler. She, uh, all of our lives, had our, her nose in everything. And then my mom and dad, my mother was very English, you know. And I remember that uh, when I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, she said, What will you do next to, to humiliate this family? You know, it's... My dad was an Irish, two-fisted, drinking, fighting, gambling kind of guy. But he was a hard drinker. He was never alcoholic. And he used to say to me, what is wrong with you? And, you know, deep down inside as an alcoholic, I was thinking to myself, what is wrong with you? But I didn't understand that the alcohol didn't suddenly change his reality. What happens to earth people when they drink is that alcohol starts out as a stimulant. And they get all kind of high. Are you here with anybody? Well, they're in the bathroom in the mirror at this point. And, you, you know, and they're, you know, like smooth and slick and, uh, you know, all that it happens to the earth people. And then what happens is, is that after a period of time in their bodies, alcohol turns into, uh, a, you know, a depressant. And so they start to get sleepy and they start to become what they call Impaired. And the music doesn't sound as good as they have a little trouble understanding people. Maybe their speech is a little slurred. So they stop. I know you've got to just go with me here. They stop drinking at this point. And then what happens is because their bodies are normal, their body flips right back into taking them into a normal cycle and they come up out of that sedative state of alcoholism back into a normal state. That is not what happens to an alcoholic of my variety. What happens to me is that my my cells are so super saturated with alcohol at this point, by the time I hit any sort of, uh, you know, depressant or any sort of a subdued mood, then what my body says is, you need more. You know, and the physical world is saying, but your teeth are on the floor and your pants are missing. (laughs) Yes. And if I just had one more beer, I would solve both of these problems. You know what I mean? if you're an alcoholic of my variety what happens when you've had too much is that you want more so that you feel better this is why they call us boys and girls insane we have this insane notion in our head that we're okay when we're drunk and we're not okay when we're sober and so what happens is if you stay sober an extended period of time you are driven into drinking you can't stay drunk for a great period of time so you're driven back into so, to sobriety, and the, the sobriety is impossible, and so you're driven back into the drinking, and it's like being a, a ping-pong ball in your own life. You know, and on top of that, you can tell your mind anything you want. It's like it has driving instructions from another master. You know, I'm not going to drink today. <laughs> yeah, right. My, that's why subconscious mind used to say, that's very entertaining. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with a scotch? Do you want to start, you know, it, it's, it's just that I, I don't have a choice in the matter of drink any longer. So at 11 years old with no knowledge of any of this, parents that have no knowledge of any of this, I had one uncle who was a sober, recovered alcoholic. His name was Uncle, uncle Stan. And Uncle Stan looked perpetually constipated. He, he, was, he was sober... You know, like sober, and I just didn't want anything he had. He was miserable, rich, and disgusting, in my opinion. That was that was the the AA uncle, and then I had Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam was a veteran in the war. He was a Canadian decorated Canadian infantry war hero, Sammy, and he'd get hammered, and then he'd start talking about the navy. He was in the Navy. I'd say, no, Sammy, you were in the infantry. No, 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 I was in the Navy. Because alcoholics will lie about anything. No matter how decorated he was, he didn't want to be him. And so he would talk about firing the big guns on the ships and all these other lies that didn't happen. And, and, and he would close one eye. When he really got hammered, This one eye would close and I remember thinking, God, if my eye ever closes like that, I, I'm going to stop. I, I'm going pretty to much, pretty much be at free. I remember the night that my wife told me, you know, you're good right until that eye closes. And then I can't stand you after that. And I thought, you know, if I ever drink and both my eyes close, I'm going to stop. <laughs> See, and this is the thing that, that's so hard to understand. People, you know, when you're having fun in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're sober, it's kind of like some of the, the chosen frozen that we have in the program, the ones that are, this is a serious program. You know who they are.
1: <laughs>
0: God damn it, Marty, it's serious. There's people dying in this thing out here. And I think, you know, if I have to live like you, pick me. I want to die. right, like right now. If that's sobriety, take me down now. Jesus. because if you're not having, and this is what my sponsor told me, he said, if you're not having more fun sober than you did when you were drinking, it's just a matter of time until you're going to go back drinking. So if you're in the room tonight and you know you've got a level of sobriety, you've got your spiritual growth has reached a certain place where you're able to manifest from the unmanifest spiritual world into the material world, Good things for you, good things for your family, good things for the people you love. That's happening in your life. But if you're not having fun, sooner or later that disease is going to poke its ugly little head above your sobriety line and it's going to start saying, hey, want to come and play some more? You know, maybe you made too big a deal about that. That was 42 years ago, Marty. You were a kid. You know what I mean? But unfortunately, even that doesn't happen as much as suicide does in in Alcoholics Anonymous. What happens when we get dry enough and serious enough, eventually we just kill ourselves. We can't go to meetings anymore because those snotty newcomers are there. They're crazy. Drug-addicted, drug-driven, crazy people. That's what they are. Why can't it be like it was when I started? Well, thank you, Jesus, that it it. That's all I can like say. If that's, if that's who you are and how you feel, you're not going to like this talk. I promise you. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is a... It, you know, it's, in 1939, they called it a fellowship. A tribe would probably be a closer word. A tribe. We're a, we're a closely associated tribe of people. We can clear... People in a bar drinking put 20 sober alcoholics beside them and they will move. Nine times out of ten. We are obnoxious and loud and totally unaware of how loud we are. You know, making passes at 85-year-old women. We have no common sense whatsoever. And the, the, more, the more fun that is, boy, the more constipated some of those guys get. I had a guy in Texas come up to me and he said, you need to take this more serious... They said, would I be like you when it stops? I would never want to be like you. I don't want what you have, and I'm willing to go to any length not to get it. (coughs) Yeah. So you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean, what happened to me at 11 years old, before I understood what the disease was, before I understood how angry I was, before in a bathroom in Melville, Saskatchewan, was that I drank a thing called loganberry wine which is a designer drug <laughs> cuz it goes down purple and it comes up pink it's amazing <laughs> you can always tell the normies cuz they're going eh, eh, ooh you know i had like a uh, sufficient amount of this Loganberry wine and I had a personality change I had, I had all the promises after step 9 come true I suddenly knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me I, I, had a new, I had a new power you know fear of financial insecurity had left me I was just like ready to go up I had decided I'll just go beat my brother Michael up is what I'll do I was 11, he was 16, it was not going to happen but logistics when you're hammered like that meaningless meaningless because you are now slicker and quicker. You have had installed in your mind the moves of Batman and the cape of Superman. Visible or not. You see what I'm saying? So I got on my bicycle. I'm just absolutely hammered. I'm going 453 miles an hour as soon as near as I can figure. When I come off the bike, I hit the pavement. I can feel the skin coming off my knees. And I'm thinking, this is so cool. (laughs) If you're an alcoholic of my variety, you don't think, oh my God, I'm being injured. You think, this does not even hurt. It was awesome. And I went home, and that little English mother opened the door, and she went, oh my God. What happened to you? And I said what came to my mind, which comes to every alcoholic's mind. There are, there's only one alcoholic brain in the entire universe, and it has completely correct answers for every question. And so she said, have you been drinking? I said, I had two. You know. (laughs) Fifteen years later, the RCMP pulled me over. Have you been drinking? I had two. You know. I've just finished throwing. I was in uh, radio television back in the day. And the the weatherman and I had gone to a place in Saskatoon called Top of the Inn. And we were just hammered. And we we had some guy in the elevator. And we were throwing them all over the elevator because... I don't know about you, but charming is the word for an alcoholic when I drink. I'm a fighter when I drink. Can you imagine that at this size? <laughs> Who are you going to beat up, you know? But anyway, so we're throwing this guy around the elevator, and the door opens, and he's gone. So we start throwing each other around. We get outside into the street, and there's, you know, those parking meters, and he I huck him, and he hucks me, and he throws me, and I hit my back into that parking meter, and it really hurt. So I said, well, you little bugger, and I went and I grabbed him and I threw him right straight through the Royal Bank of Canada's window. <laughs> Smack, I just saw him go, <laughs> and it's true, you know, it's all this slow. and out of the alley comes an RCMP officer with a gun. I don't know where the hell he was waiting for us or whatever. <laughs> Sticks the gun in my face, and I said, I'm just drunk, we're not criminal or anything. Just, just... Honestly, thought like that. I act the way I act because I'm a drunk. And that dog will not hunt after a long time. People get sick of hearing that. That's why when people talk about making apologies in step eight and step nine, I always think, you know, good luck with that. I went to somebody and said, I'm sorry. They said, you really are. You are about as sorry as it gets. They don't want sorry. They want an amend. They want you to change the way you're behaving if you've taken money from them and you're going to make an amend here's an idea take some money with you start the first payment you want to apologize to them you know, then you're putting them on the spot to forgive you I don't want to put anybody on the spot anymore I don't want to go in there and say this is what I did this is what I'm doing now is there anything else I've done to you that I'm so ignorant I don't even remember and you know that works people wish you well Sometimes they'll say, you know what? I forgive you. But I'll never put anybody in a position to do that with me again. That night after I threw that guy through that Royal Bank window, here's the thing about alcoholism is that it doesn't stop. That wasn't enough. We got out of the cops, and this is if you're an alcoholic and you're in the radio broadcasting music business, whatever, I mean the cops, he says, you know, I had my hands like he takes my wallet and he says, "Holy, are you that guy in the radio? I said, yeah. He says, <laughs> you're so funny, man. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, no ticket. So the next thing I know, the bank manager's down there. They're putting up a wooden window. Jimmy and Jim's got cuts all over his head. We're heading for my car. I said, I'm not paying to get out of the park. Hey. he said, me neither. How are we getting out? I said, well, just go right over the top. I'd been watching Dukes of Hazard. I didn't You know, you get a car going 40 or 50 miles an hour across the parking lot, when you hit those cement things, you don't launch into the air. You stop. And Jimmy's already bleeding head goes into the dashboard, cracks the dashboard right across, breaks Jimmy's nose. And when the car stopped, he says to me, let's call your wife. You know, there was not even a pause. It says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that if you're an alcoholic of our variety that the untrue has become true, that these bizarre things in your life actually seem like the normal way of life. And then you stop drinking. I see this all the time. Somebody that's two years sober, they're going kind of like, "Oh, oh, like, when's something going to happen?" <laughs> There's calm. They don't know what the hell to do with it. I don't know' go start a business. Do something. You know, have sex with another human being. Go ahead, try it. You know, whatever. Do something. Don't just sit and think about yourself all the time. So, I'm in, I'm in a state, by, by the age of 11, I'm chronically alcoholic. It says that I, it, one of the parts of the disease is that it's chronic. And it's chronic because it just doesn't stop. And so at age 11 and 12, I remember in grade 7, I, you know, what happens to you when you're an alcoholic of my variety and you've had the number of heartbreaks and disappointments and humiliations that you've had drinking? My third night out drinking, trying to fit in with the older guys, somebody filled a whole beer bottle full of cigarette butts. I drank. I never said a word. I was just afraid they wouldn't let me keep on drinking if I let them know that I drank all the cigarette butts. And I, I had one humiliation after the other. And so, so what happens when, you, when you've been humiliated that much uh, in, in, in drunkenness is that when you get sober, you, you, even if you're starting to do anything right, you feel like a fake in your own life. You feel like you're such just a great big phony because deep down inside there's this just great big sucking hole of nothingness. And it wasn't until I started going to AA in Florida that I heard that described as a God-shaped hole. Because you can put all the money you want in it. You can put all the prestige you want in it. You can do anything you want. It never, ever gets plugged until you find a power stranger than yourself. And so in Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're me and I, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous like I told you when I was 23, not because I wanted to, not because I tried to beat my brother Michael up, not because of the seven... You know, almost life taking car accidents I was in not because of the number of jobs that I lost not, not, nothing to do with any of that and when I first came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I heard you talking about what you lost I couldn't hear you I remember a guy talking about losing $285,000 at a meeting and I thought well you're just stupid <laughs> another guy talked about losing his wife and I thought well it's probably lucky for her you know, these guys... The average age in a room at Alcoholics Anonymous in 1976... The average age was dead. These were old people. 40, 50-year-olds, old. When you're, when you're 22, 37-year-old people look like they've been sent out to be wrinkled. I mean, everything looks really old. And, and they're talking about not drinking for the rest of their lives. And then they say, and if you want what we have... <laughs> i what the hell would I want what you have? My God, you're so old, you can't drink anymore. They should just take you out back, lay you down gently, and put you to sleep. That's what the best thing that could happen to you. I didn't understand what they were doing in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would listen and to what they lost. And some of them had been in jail. And I'd spent a couple of nights in jail. I'd never been in a penitentiary or anything like that. I'd had, you know, lots of trouble with girls But, you know, I hadn't lost my home I, I, you know, I couldn't identify with the loss And then one night it happened Like it will happen to you if you come to enough meetings Somebody will start talking about how it felt And you go, wait, what? What? What do you mean you, you, you're alone in a crowd? What, what do you mean that you can't, you, you can't feel any love at all? Right, and then, and then you're, you're six months sober, and you're a year sober, and there's a, a television commercial, and, and somebody, you know, the, the dog comes home, and you're going, because <laughs> your emotions are starting to wake up. <laughs> and, and the waitress says, You look nice today, and you go, Oh my God, we're in love. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've just never had anybody say anything like, God does that depth to me before, you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> uh, Oh, you have all of those romances in the EAA rooms. A girl looks at you and you go, huh? <laughs> so it's a very confusing time. When you're first in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you've got to understand you're there against your own will. Because everything that you've trained your body to be, here, here's the truth of it. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not think above the level of my feelings. My feelings absolutely drove what I did. And so, you know, the idea of me trying to think my way out of this thing is insane. Because my feelings were so strong, so programmed into my body. When I would feel fear, I could feel the adrenaline and the norepinephrine and everything go right through my body. Then my body would say, I'm afraid. My mind would say, we're afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid. Because you know, the next thing you know, you're like this. And you realize, oh my God, I'm sitting alone in my house. Nothing happened. Panic attack. Nothing's happened. I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous with two big bags of Valium in my pot. Big bags. My doctor, my dog used to open his giggle trunk and he'd give me samples and I'd have so I'm at the A with the pills, right? Now like I was gonna tell you, I didn't get sober because I wanted to get sober. I got sober because my nosy sister, meddling sister, phoned Alcoholics Anonymous and sicked a Norwegian thunder god on me. He was was just huge. For years, he told me his name was Dwayne, and then I saw the movies on his life. There was a whole series of them, Shrek. And other than Green, he's a dead ringer for Shrek. I've never, you know, some of you have met him. You know, I'm not exaggerating. But Shrek showed up in my life, and what he what he realized was that I was never going to be able. I was so emotionally. Strung out that my brain was no, I had no mind. My body was my mind. When my body craved alcohol, I went. When I had fear, I retaliated. There was no thought involved. And so what Shrek did to me was he took away my right to think. I used to say to him, well, you know what I think? And he'd say, no. (laughs) And nobody cares. Okay? You're a sick alcoholic. Alcoholic. And I said, well, whoa, 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 you told me last night when you picked me up that nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous tells anybody else that they are alcoholic. He said, no, but you've been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Normal people don't go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you idiot. You're an alcoholic. He told me that it was called Alcoholics Anonymous because there were thousands of you all over the place anonymously watching me. <laughs> every page of the big book with the word honesty had been ripped out of his book but what he knew was that I cannot get sober thinking my way into right actions that I could only get sober by acting my way into right thinking and that I couldn't even make a decision to act my way into right thinking so he just took away my right to think and I'd, I'd open the back door and Shrek would be standing there and I'd go oh, what? he'd say get in the car I don't want to get in the car I know get in the car I told him one time I'm going to call the police he said the police are in on this so <coughs> you got a tough sponsor good you got a sponsor you love every minute of every day get a different one if you had a sponsor that's never upset you they're not telling you the truth you've got to have somebody that will tell you the truth Paul I saw what you did there I've told, I sponsored Paul, and we have a great friendship, and he just went, oh. Anyway, your sponsor's got to be that person. You know, sponsor came out of the Oxford groups. They used to sponsor people into the Oxford groups, and we inherited that into Alcoholics Anonymous. Mentor would probably be a better name. This is somebody that you're asking to, to participate in your life. You're giving them the right to say, you were nuts. You are not going to do that. You have got to have somebody like this because you can't, especially in the early going, trust your own thinking. Why? Because your body wants you to do things that are not good for you. Think about it. No, don't. Feel about it. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, what happened to me was that Shrek moved into my life and we started going to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. meeting. I heard nothing. I tolerated every coffee session with these old people all talking about different, uninteresting stuff and I waited every night until we'd get back in the big Ford LTD and he'd drop me off and say, see you tomorrow and i think that, <laughs> if only the cops weren't watching, you know <laughs> and he told me that if in 90 days I still felt the same way he would refund all my misery and I could go someplace else and die he said, up until then, if you drink, you call me I will bring you your first beer. You will drink it, and then I will bust every bone in your body. I'd say, "Well, how, why do you talk to me like that?" And he'd say, "Because I love you." Yeah. Because he said, "When you drink, you're going to get hurt. You know it. And I just don't want you hurt by strangers. I will, I will bust you up in a controlled, loving way." Yeah. So alcoholism is this disease of isolation. The thing that it isn't described in that medical definition of alcoholism, wasn't described till many years later, was this whole notion of, of how isolated we are. And so when I was nine months sober and Shrek was you know, driving me all over the place and making me do things I didn't want to do with people I didn't like, uh, and, and, I, and I was mysteriously starting to feel better. I couldn't, I couldn't put a finger on it. But I suddenly didn't want to quit my job. I didn't hate my wife. I mean, a bunch of stuff started to change. I didn't know it was changing, but it was changing. And I was started begrudgingly starting to think Shrek was kind of funny. You know, because we'd do things like pick up newcomers. He had a, a van that only had two seats in it, and he'd, he'd load up the back with newcomers, and then he'd drive up and down the ditches and roll them around in the back of the van until they would admit that there was a power greater than themselves, you know. And I had to kind of aggressively admit, I kind of like this. You know, it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to be in a tribe. It's kind of fun to be different and apart from. You know that guy I threw through, through the bank window? Jim, He's dead. Last thing Jim said to me before he died, he had a big blue alcoholic nose. Because when I when I stopped drinking, he said, Marty, our friendship is over. I said, why? And he said, because a man that doesn't drink whiskey, in my opinion, is not a man. I'm not interested in being your friend anymore. And he wouldn't even go for lunch with me till the day he died. But the last thing he ever said to me, the last thing Jim ever said to me before he died was, I guess we know who took the right turn in the road back there. And I said... Jim, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Let's go have some lunch. And he said, no, I wouldn't eat lunch with somebody like you. So he was, (laughs) Irish, committed to the concept of the brotherhood of alcoholism. You think it's not real? It's real. Because we, you know, we hang together like people with B.O. all in one corner. You see all the elkies all in one corner. You know what I mean? I said to Shrek one time, if I'm alcoholic, everybody I know is alcoholic. And he went, correct. Nobody that wasn't alcoholic would drink with a loose cannon like you. Why would they? It's too dangerous. You see? And so, I'm in, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm 90 or so days sober, driving down the road, and then I have a godshot moment where it says, this is a terminal disease. You are going to die if you drink again. <laughs> what? Because I hated me, but I couldn't get enough of me all at the same time, you know? Somebody said one time, a narcissist is somebody having a love affair with themselves that cannot stand the object of their affection. (laughs) Basically where I was. So at 90 days sober, I phoned Shrek and I said, Oh my God, I'm an alcoholic. If I drink, I'm going to die. He said, Calm down. The fact you recognize that you're an alcoholic, all that does is make it unanimous. Now everybody knows you're an alcoholic. What do you need? And I said, I need to talk to a professional. (laughs) He said, excuse me? I said, I want to talk to somebody that has some degrees, like numbers behind their name. A professional, not a bunch of people that just saved their lives. And he said, okay. So come on down here, i got a guy. And so he sends me this guy, Bob. I go into Bob's office, and I said, he said, what do you want to know? I said, I want to know what's wrong with me. If, if I'm alcoholic, what does that mean? He said, well, it, what it means is you have a biochemical genetic disorder centered in the hypothalamic information control center of your brain, which has been made worse by your liver's inability to metabolize alcohol without producing acid aldehyde which mixed with dopamine produces tetrahydroisoquinoline, and that is a nasty combination given your narcissistic, egocentric core, which is driven at times by feelings of omnipotence, which tend to their own integrity despite the cognitive dissonance and stimulus augmentation. (laughs) I said... people say why do you call yourself an alcoholic and I say because nobody wants to repeat all that that's why so I said to him, what does that mean he said it means that, that you're really awful when you drink you can't stop drinking and that you're an asshole when you're sober that was from Bob the professional and he suggested that I go to the ANA so I came out of there kind of like hmm and by God was I surprised six or seven months later when I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and there was Bob (laughs) it was set up like everything else that ever happened to me around Shrek (laughs) it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter if you understand all those words the problem is that this thing is active in you that it is progressing and that drinking or not drinking you're getting sicker by the moment and so now I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm a year sober, and I'm five years sober, and I'm talking all over the world. By the time I was 31, I had become a multi-millionaire. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I had my own horse ranch. I was raising and racing thoroughbred racehorses. I built a company that went right across Canada. I was working for General Electric as one of the youngest presidents they'd ever had in a division. I had everything in the world going for me, except the problem was I had absolutely... No spiritual connection. What I had was the groups of Alcoholics Anonymous and my own understanding of how the program worked. I call this mechanical sobriety. The rooms I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous are full of people that have a wonderful mechanical program but no relief. And that every day that they come out of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, they get in the car and they think to themselves, it's getting better for them, but is it ever going to get better for you? And they can't hear the music. And, and you, you start so you can't stand when you hear certain people talk. And you just get to a place where all everything about Alcoholics Anonymous is just getting really hard to do. And we, we see them disappear at the meetings, don't we? We see a lot of our elders just disappear at the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they, and they, and they say it's not like it used to be. These aren't, they aren't the same as it used to be. And I tell them, thank God for that because I think the young people coming in here with all of the speed up drug shit that they're doing they're so burnt down to the ground by the time they get to us they can have a great life from 18 and on but we've got to deliver a solid message we have got to deliver a solid message of recovery and hope and give them a spiritual opening so now I'm 20 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm 25 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and at 28 years in AA I wander away I'm working in Washington, D.C. building children's cartoons, and I'm a big shot, a legend in my own mind. And I don't go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore because I've heard everything, seen everything, done everything, know everything. I don't speak at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore because I can't stand listening to me. I don't call a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore because I've been sober 28 years, and he's saying things to me like, God, you know, why don't you just deal with that yourself? And once again I find myself apart from and different than and alone and married and unhappy in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what you do when you're 28 years sober and you've got all that going on? You make a vow to yourself you'll never tell anybody because you don't want to scare the newcomers. And you don't want to tell anybody older than you because they've all got advice and you sure as hell don't want any of that. And I went two years Not going to meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened to me was like what happens to somebody that's lost in a forest. It was like having no compass. I I couldn't tell what was true or not true. I couldn't tell which was due north or south. I just felt completely ill at ease. At this point, I'm 55 years old. My marriage has ended because I'm such a delight to be with. Sober. And I'm down in, in, in the United States... And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, you know, dating at 55. I never got to date. I went right out of alcoholism into fatherhood. I don't know about the rest of you, but I've been married so long, I didn't know what that was about. So I'm kind of like, wow, oh, I'm sober and I'm out of the box, watch me go. Well, I went for about seven months and then all of a sudden we're having a baby. I had no idea when you were this old, you could even reproduce, I, I swear to God, true. I thought there's gotta be a point where God says that's enough of that. Apparently not, because you know we have a baby. I have an eleven-year-old boy. His name is Luca. He's a Luca and he is. Uh, he, he, one of the things he said at school the other day was he was very proud of his father because he had two birthdays. Uh, <laughs> depth of his understanding around alcoholism. So here's the deal. You know, you, you, find your, you come awake, and it says in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that there's a difference between having a spiritual awakening, which I definitely had in the early going, and a spiritual experience, which I definitely missed around my 25th year. I missed the opportunity to start to experience the sense of relief and ease that the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous can give you. And so I came back to British Columbia from Washington with this pregnant wife, and this new baby on the way, and I, 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 I condescended to go and help with a big book study, you know, old timer and wisdom guide that I was. I thought I'll go and help them, and they handed out a sheet at the start of the thing, and there was thirty questions. Do you sponsor anybody? No. Do you pray every night? No. Do you? And it went thirty times, and I had thirty nos. And the the talk is going around the table like they do it at these step studies. And I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I've got no program. I've I got nothing going on here. I'm just, my eyes are this big, my pupils must have been that big. I was terrified for the first time God gave me a spiritual experience sober. And I mean, I could hear it in my head, you could either go back or go away. It's really up to you. I was at that turning point, And I had to ask God's protection and care with complete abandon. And I started showing up at the group meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, 30 years sober, newcomers welcoming me back, guys that didn't even, they thought I was a newcomer. I mean, I was so stressed out. And I would sit at the back of the rooms, and I started, day by day, I started to hear the music of Alcoholics Anonymous again. And what I started to understand is that you can go in the room and and Alcoholics Anonymous, like when you're new, you kind of get a free ticket, and your spirit's awake, and you're looking around, wow, look at this. And you can hear the music and you can smell the smells. Because all of those things are spiritual. Do you ever have a newcomer say to you, God, the sky's blue today. Right? The trees are so green. I always say to them, that's because your spirit is awake now. Those are spiritual things. The food tastes so good. The music is so much better. And even that spouse you have starts to look a little... You know what I mean? Like, you start to wake up. And so I'm in these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and slowly, little by little, inch by inch, I start to reawaken to the idea that there is a power that's greater than myself. And I start to figure out where did I fall off? And I looked at it and really where I went off the beam is step three. I got all caught up in the idea of making a decision. I didn't even think about what the actual decision was. The decision is that from now on in this drama of life, you, Marty Jeffrey, big shot, are not running things. There is no amount of organization or money or prestige or position that you can earn that will help you wrest satisfaction out of life. See, I I should have woke up maybe a couple of years earlier because God also took all my money. said, you're going to get so humble, you will love it. (laughs) Gives me this little kid. I'm walking Luca in a stroller. And this woman walks up and she goes, oh my God, what a beautiful baby. What's your grandson's name? <laughs> I said, Declan. She said, hello, Declan. I said, no, no, that's Luca. She said, you just told me his name was Declan. I said, no, my grandchild's name is Luca. That's my son. Or my, my grandson's name is Declan. That's my son, Luca. And she went, Oh. And I found myself in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous starting to laugh. And I, and, I, and I woke up to this notion of the idea that that I got a new boss. That I don't have to plan every single day. That the way that I have to get above this mind of mine that is no longer being run by my mind but by my body and all of the physical things that I think I need, all these materialistic Yelps and wants and needs that I have are screaming at me every single day that the only way i 'm going to get above that is to turn my life my mind really i think it, it the, the step should say that that I admit that my my life my mind has become unmanageable my mind had become unmanageable i couldn 't tell me to go this direction and go that direction. It was just as likely I was going to go that way, but i didn 't know why, and so i day by day, just like a newcomer. What I started to do was surrender the things that I would not surrender. I surrendered my money. I surrendered my anger. That was a tough one for me. You know, I was driving along in the car with a newcomer and somebody cut me off. And I went into that road rage thing that we do when we're self-righteous, sober alcoholics. Around 30 years sober, you know, like everybody on the planet should acknowledge what we've done. And uh, <laughs> Like I, I, just lost, just lost it. And this newcomer said to me, oh, "Where the hell did that come from?" And I said, "What do you mean? Where did it come from?" The guy cut me off. He said, "No, no. Where did all that rage come from?" Holy crap! That was spectacular. It was like watching a volcano. I said, "Shut up!" You know. The rage doesn't happen when somebody cuts you off. It's there. That just turns the valve and out it comes. You know, somebody said one time, if you squeeze a lemon, all you'll ever get out of it is lemon juice. Right? Doesn't matter if you sneak up on it and squeeze it, or you squeeze it really hard for a long time. Doesn't matter. Just lemon juice. And then he said, if I walked up to you and squeezed you really hard, what would come out? I'll tell you what would come out of me back in that day. Just what the newcomers need. I want that. (laughs) Is, Is that what 30 years of sobriety does for you? You know, it says the hardest place to work this program is in your home. That's why. It's because I've got to go inside and I have to have deflation at great depth. I have to understand that what I think you should do and what I think I should do and what I think you shouldn't do and what I think I should do and what I think is right and what I think is wrong doesn't matter. I have no opinion on what I think you should do. I say to God, if there's any possible way I could be used in this other person's life, show me. You know, it's, really, it's a different thing when you've got this higher power as your boss. The dialogue does not stop all day. I don't have a part in my day anymore where I'm not prayerfully saying to God as I'm walking to the front of this room, could you please, dear Jesus, Lord and Savior, put your hand up my ass and move my mouth because I don't know what I'm going to say. And I just if I could say anything that would help somebody, that's what I would say. No matter how bad I look, I don't care. Lady, drop the poodle. Drop that. <laughs> anyway, so what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is that it's it, it called in 1939 a psychic change. But in 2018 with cognitive science and everything, what you start to understand is, is that right at the front of our brain, there's a simulator. And this is the reason we don't have Ben and Jerry's liver flavored and uh, onion ice cream. You don't have to make that to think that it would be awful. You can simulate it in your mind before it ever happens. Now, if you're an alcoholic of our variety, everything you're putting in the simulator is wrong. Sort of like, you know, an aircraft pilot in the simulator and all they're feeding in is 90-degree mountains and engine failures. and It's just one problem after the other. Until the pilot finally says, Screw it, I might as well get drunk before I hit the ground. So I've I've got to go to a place where it's not me putting stuff in the simulator anymore. I can't trust that mind of mine because all it wants to do is take care of my body. So I've had to divorce myself from the idea that I will ever regain control. I will never, as it says in the big book, the obsession of an abnormal drinker is to control and enjoy his or her drinking. I'm going to take that a step farther and say the... The obsession of an abnormal thinker is to control and enjoy his or her thinking. And I'm here to tell you that after 42 years of sobriety, it ain't happened yet. And as long as I'm asking for guidance, as long as I understand that there might be a plan that's better than anything I could think of, and that all I have to do is offer myself to be fit to be of maximum use to God's kids. Bill Wilson said it like this. He said, I was depressed until I understood to close the circuit But I had to love God's kids the same way he loved me. I had to not judge and just love. You know, when you think about a higher power, what comes into your mind? Because most people think punishing, angry, judgmental, sky fairy, just sitting there ready to knock the snot out of you as soon as you die. I can't pray to a God like that. I can't ask a God like that for anything. I'll tell you how my God is. My God is love, bountiful, boundless love. My God is infinite intelligence. My God is bottomless wisdom. My God is beauty. My God is the never-ending principle of perfect good. My God is the spirit that's inside of me that connects me to absolutely everything I need to know on a daily basis in order to, to survive and be happy. So... In Alcoholics Anonymous, what, what they did so brilliantly back in 1939, without Bill really understanding what he was writing, come on. He was three and a half years sober. You know, I don't know about you at three and a half years sober. You, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I could not have possibly written down the steps, even if I was told what to write down. I'd have tried to improve on them, for God's sake, you know. But what it says in there is that once I've got this idea that I have a new employer, I have a new boss, it says, that's a great decision, Marty. Good for you. And now, if you want it to be permanent, it's going to require action. The first action of which is you're going to have to confront the idea that everything you've done in the past may not be what you think it is. And I'm going to ask you to do a step four. And in a step four, our elders, sadly, all they saw was the word anger. That I'm going to list, have a list of all the people with whom I'm angry. And I'm here to tell you that's not what the book says. Read it. It says that I was angry. It was usually my pocketbook, you know, personal relationship. And then he comes up out of that bunny hole and he says, we were hurt. We were threatened. And you see, when I deal with people, and I deal with people all the time working the steps, long time sober people, they're not as angry as they are hurt. They're not as angry as they are threatened. They walk in their rooms of their, their home group that they've been going to, and nobody comes up to them and says, Hallelujah, Yahya! Because if they did, you'd just feel okay. In fact, they don't say anything. And what we forgot when we're all these years sober is, we're not there to get, we're there to give, to close the circuit, to go up to that young guy, gal, that we completely don't understand and say, Hi, how are you? You know, it's so bad... In, in the current day Alcoholics Anonymous, we in our group, we had to form a position called a chaser. And our chasers uh, uh, agree for one month that after the meeting, when the meeting ends, that they won't visit with one another. That what they'll do is they'll go and they'll find the people who are new in the room, or people that don't look like they're connected to anybody else or isolated, and they'll go over to them and say, give me your telephone number, I'm going to call you tomorrow. Because what we've got to do a better job of in Alcoholics Anonymous right now is showing these people the spiritual kind tools. I don't care if they come from a treatment center or, or Nantucket. I couldn't care less. What I care about is, am I showing them, in light of what I now know about them, if they have this relentless disease, if they've got what I've got, am I showing them this list to: Am I telling them how it felt for me? Not what I lost so that they can be better, less than, or against me. What happened here? Like, what, where is the rearrangement? How did you affect that psychic change? In 2018, how did you get that simulator to not always come up with crappy scenarios? You know, when, when you go into the, some of the studies, and I'll finish here really quickly, but they're starting to do what are called fMRI studies of the, of the brain. And what they found out was that there's a, there's a part of the brain that is actually hooked into, and this is astounding, hope. Hope is an actual dynamic cognitive process. And what happens with a person that doesn't have hope is that they can no longer think creatively. I want you to think about newcomers. I want you to think about yourself when you got here. It wasn't that I wouldn't have done something different. I couldn't think of anything different. It wasn't that I didn't want anything different. I couldn't think of anything I wanted that would be different. My entire ability to have any creative thought was completely shut down. And so it says in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, that we have a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is we sit in those chairs and up through our rear ends through a very complicated scientific process called arsmosis (laughs) is that the hope starts to come back into our What happened to me at 30 years sober at the back of the rooms was that I started to get hope. I started to think, oh my God, I actually love this again. And here I am now, many years later, I think I'm probably more enthusiastic about Alcoholics Anonymous than I've ever been at any point in my life. I work with three to five people every single week, going through steps, I do steps all the time. And what I find in that is that that I see God over and over again. You know, like the story of the newcomer female in Alcoholics Anonymous. She had that alcoholic car with the one window that wouldn't go up. You know the car that you have to put up on a lift to really see the dents? The alcoholic car? You know the one that's been up on the curb 450 times? That morning in meditation, she had said to God, I need a sign, I need something so totally, so totally unique, something that's so outstanding that I absolutely know you sent it to me. And she's chugging along up this hill. And out of nowhere, a dove flies in the window of the car, lands on where she, the, the console, and, and, she, and it makes eye contact with her. She just sits looking at that dove. And she freaked out. She pulls over to the side. She rolls the window down. The dove flies out the window. Later that day, talking to her sponsor, she says, Let me tell you what happened to me today. That crap car of mine... I kept and all birds are flying in the car. a <laughs> big book Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a chapter in there, page 53. In fact, it says that having become alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither avoid nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. It says, arrived at this point, we are squarely confronted with a question of faith. Now many of us had walked far across the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promises brought luster to tired eyes and new hope to flagging spirits Friendly hands were outstretched in welcome, but somehow we just couldn't step ashore. And so what I'd leave you with tonight is this, you know, is, have you reasoned that, that there is something powerful in alcoholics? You know, have you got to a place where you're right at the edge of the bridge and you have to say, now it's time to absolutely step off and hand this whole mess over to God? You know, are you at a place where you realize that that the hope you're going to gain is when you see the lights come on in the newcomer's eyes? There's nobody at any group waiting to help you. You go to the group to help them. And what will happen to you will absolutely amaze you before you're halfway through. God bless and thank you for letting me share that.